Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 88. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, the elections are over. Because I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon, I'm not sure who won yet, but I am sure glad it's the hell over. I know a lot of you probably wrote me in on your ballots, and I do appreciate that, but right now I'm not really getting my hopes up. I've got to take Delaware and New Mexico in order to stand a chance, and according to the pundits, it's not going to be easy. But hey, there's always next year. I do hope everyone got out there and voted, though even if you had absolutely no clue about the issues or what the candidates stood for on things. It's your right as an American to make completely uninformed decisions about things. I'll never forget P. Diddy's urgent campaign message in 2004. Vote or die, fool. I tell you, those West Side electioneers ain't fronting, yo. They some badass, informed, conscientious, make-a-real-difference-in-the-world type mofos. Know what I'm saying? Of course you do. It's no secret what really happened to Biggie Smalls. Shit, that punk-ass G wasn't down with democracy, didn't roll to the polls, and that's a damn tragedy, cause civically it's your responsibility, even though that technically you're really only voting theoretically, tangentially, Father G's supposedly supposed to be voting correspondingly, I mean come on, congressionally, our shit's structured by camerally, so states get equal rights to represent even handily. The electoral homies that we vote for implicitly, they do the real voting for the ballers and candidacy, who gotta get props from an absolute majority from the senate and the history. That number is 270, say what? A deadlock? That's a catastrophe, but don't be trippin' constitutional contingency. 12th Amendment says in case of a stalemate, the House chooses the President. Senate okays his running mate. Now if you got questions, do a search on Wikipedia. If you don't like it, move your ass to Armenia. Or Canada, bitch. Whew, sorry about that. Don't know what got into me. Sometimes I just bust out into freestyle raps about American government. I think it's a rare form of Tourette's. If anybody needs a civics teacher, hit me up, playa. Speaking of government and education, this week we bring you another story by Saki, or Hector Hugh Monroe, if you're not a fan of pen names. Saki was born in 1870, and if podcasting existed back then, I'd probably fire editor Luke and replace him with this guy. The story is called The Toys of Peace, and it was first included in an anthology of the same name that was published immediately after his death in World War I. So without further ado, The Toys of Peace by Saki. "'Harvey!' said Eleanor Bope, handing her brother a cutting from a London morning newspaper, the 19th of March. "'Just read this about children's toys, please. It carries out exactly some of her ideas about influence and upbringing.' "'In the view of the National Peace Council,' ran the extract, There are grave objections to presenting our boys with regiments of fighting men, batteries of guns, and squadrons of dreadnoughts. Boys, the council admits, naturally love fighting and all the panoply of war, but there is no reason for encouraging and perhaps giving permanent form to their primitive instincts. At the Children's Welfare Exhibition, which opens at Olympia in three weeks' time, the Peace Council will make an alternative suggestion to parents in the shape of an exhibition of peace toys. In front of a specially painted representation of the Peace Palace, there will be grouped not miniature soldiers, but miniature civilians, not guns, but plows and the tools of industry. It is hoped that manufacturers may take hint from the exhibit, which will bear fruit in the toy shops. 
Huh. Well, the idea is it's certainly an interesting and very well-meaning one, said Harvey. Yeah, but whether it would succeed well in practice, though, we must try, interrupted his sister. Now, you're coming down to us at Easter, and you always bring the boys some toys. That would be an excellent opportunity for you to inaugurate the new experiment. You know, just go about in the shops and buy any little toys and models that have special bearing on civilian life and its more peaceful aspects. Of course, you'd have to explain the toys to the children and interest them in the new idea. I regret to say that the Siege of Adrianopoly toy that their Aunt Susan sent them did not need an explanation. They knew all the uniforms and flags, and even the names of the respective commanders. I heard them one day using what seemed to be some pretty objectionable language. They said they were Bulgarian words of command. Of course, they may have been, but at any rate, I took the toy away from them. Now I shall expect your Easter gifts to give quite a new impulse and direction to my children's minds. Eric is not yet eleven, and Bertie is only nine and a half, so they really are at a most impressionable age. Well, there is primitive instinct to be taken into consideration, you know, said Henry, doubtfully. And, uh, hereditary tendencies as well. One of their great uncles fought in the most intolerant fashion at Inkerman. He was specially mentioned in dispatches, I believe. And their great-grandfather, he smashed all those Whig neighbors' hothouses when the Great Reform Bill was passed. Still, like you said, they're at an impressionable age. I'll do my best. On Easter Saturday, Harvey Bope unpacked a large, promising-looking red cardboard box under the expectant eyes of his nephews. Your uncle has brought you the newest thing in toys, Eleanor had said impressively and youthful anticipation had been anxiously divided between Albanian soldiery and a Somali camel corps. Eric was hotly in favor of the latter contingency. <gasps> There's gonna be Arabs on horseback, he whispered. I mean, the Albanians have got, like, the jolliest uniforms, and they fight all day long and all night too whenever there's a moon, but the country's totally rocky, so they've got, like, no cavalry. A quantity of crinkly paper shavings was the first thing that met their view when the lid was removed. The most exciting toys always began like that. Harvey pushed back the top layer and drew forth a square, rather featureless building. It's a fort! exclaimed Bertie. No way, it's the palace of the Mepret of Albania, said Eric, immensely proud of his knowledge of the exotic title. It's got, like, no windows, see? So that passerbys can't fire in the royal family. <clears throat> well, actually, it's a municipal dustbin, said Harvey, hurriedly. You see, boys, all the refuse and litter of a town is collected there, instead of lying about and injuring the health of the uh, citizens. In an awful silence, he disinterred a little lead figure of a man in black clothes. And this little fella right here, this is a distinguished civilian, John Stuart Mill. He was an authority on political economy. Why? asked Bertie. Well, he wanted to be. He thought it was a useful thing to be. Bertie gave an expressive grunt, which conveyed his opinion that there was no accounting for tastes. Another square building came out, 
this time with windows and chimneys. And this is a model of the Manchester branch of the Young Women's Christian Association, said Harvey. Oh, um, are there any lions? Asked Eric, hopefully. He had been reading Roman history and thought that where you found Christians, you might reasonably expect to find a few lions. <laughs> lions? No, um, no, there, there aren't any lions, said Harvey. But here is another civilian, Robert Rakes, the founder of Sunday schools. And here is a model of a municipal wash house. Uh, these little round things are loaves baked in a sanitary bakehouse. Oh, that lead figure is a sanitary inspector. And this one is a district councillor. Oh, and this one is an official of the local government board. What does he do? Asked Eric wearily. Well, he sees the things connected with his department, said Harvey. Ooh, what's this? This little box with a slit. It's a ballot box. Votes are put into it at election times. What is put into it at other times? Asked Bertie. Um, uh, nothing. And here are some tools of industry for you kids to play with. A wheelbarrow and a hoe. And this is a model beehive. And this is a ventilator for ventilating sewers. This seems to be another municipal dustbin. No, it's a model of a school of art. Oh, and a public library. This little lead figure here is Miss Hemmins, a poetess. And this is Sir John Herschel, the eminent astrologer. Are we, um, supposed to play with these civilian figures? Asked Eric. <laughs> of course, said Harvey. These are toys. They are meant to be played with. But how? Well, you might make two of them contest a seat in Parliament. Huh? Have an election. <gasps> with rotten eggs? And fights? And, and broken heads? exclaimed Eric. No, nothing of the kind, said Harvey. Nothing in the least like that. Votes will be put in the ballot box and the mayor will count them and he will say which has received the most votes and then the two candidates will thank him for presiding and each will say that the contest has been conducted throughout in the most pleasant and straightforward fashion as they part with expressions of mutual esteem. That's a jolly good game for you boys to play. I never had such toys when I was young. I, I don't think we can play with them just now, said Eric. We have uh, homework. It's, it's actually history. We've got to learn something about the Bourbon period in France. The Bourbon period, said Harvey, with some disapproval in his voice. Well, we've got to know something about Louis XIV, continued Eric. And I already know all the names of the principal battles. This would never do. Psh, of course there were some battles fought during... His reign, but listen, the accounts of those are so much exaggerated. News was unreliable, 
In those days, there were practically no war correspondents, so generals and commanders could magnify every little skirmish they engaged until they reached the proportions of decisive battles. Louis was really famous now as a landscape gardener. The way he laid out Versailles was so admired. And you know what? People still copy him. Like, all over Europe. Um, yeah. Say, do you know anything about Madame du Barry? asked Eric. I mean, didn't she have her head chopped off? <laughs> you know what? She was another great lover of gardening. In fact, I believe the well-known Rose Dewberry was named after her. You know what? Why don't you guys go play for a little while and we'll get to your lessons later. Harvey retreated to the library and spent some thirty or forty minutes in wondering whether it would be possible to compile a history for use in elementary schools in which there should be no prominent mention of battles, massacres, murderous intrigues, and violent deaths. The York and Lancaster period and the Napoleonic era would, he admitted, present considerable difficulties, and the Thirty Years' War would entail something of a gap if you left it out altogether. Still, it would be something gained if, at a highly impressionable age, children could be got to fix their attention on the invention of calico printing instead of the Spanish Armada or the Battle of Waterloo. <sighs> it was time, he thought, to go back to the boys' room and see how they were getting on with their peace toys. As he stood outside the door, he could hear Eric's voice raised in command. Bertie chimed in now and again with a helpful suggestion. That one is totally Louis XIV, Eric was saying. That one with the weird pants that Uncle was saying invented Sunday schools. It doesn't really look anything like him, but it'll have to do. Ooh, I can give him a purple coat for my paint box, said Bertie. Yeah, and like some red heels. Oh, this girl's going to be Madame de Maintenon, the one he called Miss Hemmins. She begs Louis not to go on this expedition, but he totally turns a deaf ear. He takes Marshal Saxe with him, and we'll just have to pretend that they have thousands of men. Uh, the watchword is qui vive, and the answer is l'état c'est moi, because that was like, you know, one of his favorite things to say, right? They land at Manchester in the dead of the night, and a Jacobite conspirator totally gives them the keys to the fortress. Peeping in through the doorway, Harvey observed that the municipal dustbin had been pierced with holes to accommodate the muzzles of imaginary cannon, and now represented the principal fortified position in Manchester. John Stuart Mill had been dipped in red ink, and apparently stood now for Marshal Saxe. Okay, so then Louis orders his troops to surround the Young Women's Christian Association and seizes the lot of them. Once back at the loo, the girls are mine, he exclaims. I, th I think we're going to have to use Miss Hemmons again for one of the girls. Anyways, she says, never, and stabs Marshal Saxe in the heart. <coughs> no, he's bleeding, exclaimed Bertie splashing red ink liberally over the facade of the association building. But the soldiers rush in and avenge his death with the utmost savagery. A hundred girls are killed. Here, Bertie emptied the remainder of the red ink over the devoted building. And the surviving five hundred are dragged off to the French ships. 
I have lost a martial, but I do not go back empty. Harvey stole away from the room and sought out his sister. Um, Eleanor, he said, the experiment, uh, yes, has failed. We've gotten to them too late. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. They do say children learn best through play. Here's a little promo for an audio fiction podcast I started listening to recently called the Dune Steve Podcast. You should check them out. I've been enjoying their stuff so far. Hi, I'm Rich Outfield. And I'm Big Anklevich. And he's 080T, our robotic production assistant and show editor. We're here to tell you about the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine. The Doonstief is a podcast that brings you fiction stories submitted by writers, real and imagined. That's right. Science fiction, fantasy, horror, and anything else we find that works on audio. Each episode also includes insightful commentary from your intelligent and attractive host. So please stop by on the Doonstief.com and have a listen. That's D-U-N-E-S-T-E-E-F. You're probably wondering what the Doonstief is. I know I am. Big, why don't you uh, tell us where that name comes from? No, it's all right. You can tell him. But I, I don't know what it means, man. Oh, it's, uh, it's my middle name. My parents were hippies. Oh, guess we should cut this part out of the promo. Hey, uh, 08 OT, can you edit that last part out? Uh, was, was that a yes? <laughs> you don't want to know, man. It's fun stuff. Let's catch up on story feedback. A while back, we ran Bob Reed's story, Floating Over Time, a story with two parallel accounts of passing time, experienced by an old man drowning and an alien robot. Big response here. Camo Blamo said, That was one hell of a good story. I had to listen to it twice. The first time around, I was completely intoxicated by the lyrical nature of the words, and I took very little of the story itself. The second time around I listened to it, I understood what Norm meant. Good call, too, not adding feedback or the other regular departments. This is another example of a great Drabblecast that doesn't need poop jokes, zombies, or parasites to work. Aquarello, to me, really summed up the story best by saying, Beautiful, haunting, fascinating. Although both met the same end, one wonders the aims and purposes of each character, whether the ship's sacrifice on the altar of knowledge or the man's determination to dictate the last of his days on his own terms made any difference in the light of eternity. Time, whether 50 million years or a mere 77, is all we have, regardless of whether you think it makes a difference to others. It makes a difference to you. Not everyone was taken in by the story, though. Sevenfooter1 said, Looks like I'll be the black sheep when posting my comments to this story. I listened to this one in the car and found myself daydreaming and not at all interested, which usually doesn't happen with the Drabblecast stories. Maybe I missed something the first time around. I'll definitely go back and listen to it again to see what all the fuss is about. Likewise, Jonathan C.G. said, This one didn't work for me. I really, really wanted to like it, but I have a rough time with stories that move at a pace roughly equivalent to a three-toed sloth. 
I think if you had taken two college professors harping on philosophy and set it to sound effects and music, it would have had the same effect to me. Thanks everyone for your comments. If you'd like to comment, you can do so on our website or our discussion forums at www.drabblecast.org. While you're there, you might consider donating to us either once or for $5 a month to help us pay our authors. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can use it to teach your children about war, aliens, and poop. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that Albanians have jolly uniforms. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round.